Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Devaney, lead pastor at Asbury, and thanks for joining us. We hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, maybe even entertain you a little bit. Here we go. This week, as you're reading through the one-year Bible, you will have uh, you'll have read some historical stuff in in Second Kings, and we get to this point where Hezekiah is the king over Judah. Uh, Judah being the the southern of the two kingdoms that exist after uh, the reign of Solomon, when the kingdom splits in two. So the northern kingdom of Israel, which is um, <clears throat> excuse me. The northern kingdom it is kind of portrayed throughout the books of Kings as like the worst of the two, um, the more sinful one, the one that has like no good kings, right? Judah's not great, but at least some of the kings of Judah are like somewhat faithful. Um, and, and there's like some glimmers of hope in the kingdom of Judah that the people will, will be faithful to God. You don't get that in the northern kingdom. Um, the northern kingdom appears to just be kind of a horrible place uh, in terms of it, its faithfulness to the God of Israel. Um, and a lot happens in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is where the whole, all of the stories about Elijah and Elisha take place, and they're considered two of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. Um, many of the other prophets in the Bible deal with, with the northern kingdom. Um, the prophet Amos, famously, uh, is all of his whole book is about the impending doom of the northern kingdom of Israel. And you may want to skip ahead, actually, and read that book after you read, well, I guess you've already read the, the story of the fall of the northern kingdom. Um, but, but Amos, as a prophet, has this really, to me at least, it's this really haunting book um, that's almost reminiscent of like the opening scenes of a horror movie where like the protagonist or someone else can see that something awful is about to happen but no one else can and that's what what the book of Amos reads like he's wandering around the northern kingdom and he the, the way that he sees the world through the lens of scripture tells him that God is going to have to do something drastic and violent to fix the, the this kingdom that is so broken and so sinful and so he's, he's like wandering around the northern kingdom of Israel, watching them go about their daily lives, knowing that they're doomed. It's really fascinating. <clears throat> um, but anywho, the northern kingdom gets annihilated by the, the empire of Assyria. The Assyrians invade, and, and the way that the Assyrian empire operated was it would conquer a people, and then it would take the people it had conquered and forcibly resettle them. It would sort of scatter them throughout the empire, and then it would resettle the newly conquered territory, either with uh, Assyrian colonists or with other conquered peoples. And the whole idea was that by, by taking your conquered peoples and sort of mixing them up and scattering them and removing them from their homeland, which is a much bigger deal back then than it is now, and it's still a big deal now, but but people were much more connected to the land in that day and age. Um, by, by doing all of that, they hoped to uh, make it much harder for a conquered people to rebel against the Assyrian Empire. It was sort of their way of maintaining order over conquered people. The Assyrians were a very cruel empire. Um, 
not, not a fun people to be living under if they ruled over you. Um, so the northern kingdom gets gets just annihilated, and this is a very traumatic event for the southern kingdom of Judah because it's kind of like, um, like imagine, uh, there's not a good analogy for us really. It, you have to imagine, like not not quite nine eleven, because it's even a higher the, the scale of the national shock is sig- more significant than what we felt on nine eleven. Maybe maybe imagine that. I don't know that that China comes in and invades the western half of the U.S. and just annihilates it, completely destroys the military, kidnaps all of the people living west of the Rockies, and takes them back to China, and then just leaves. Imagine what that would be like, and you have a sense of what the people of Judah are feeling in the aftermath of the the fall of the Northern Kingdom. And so the way that the geopolitical world is shaping up at this point <clears throat> is that Assyria is, has become essentially the, the sole superpower. And as their name suggests, they're sort of centered in, in sort of the Syria, northern Iraq region. Um, but they now rule directly over most of the Middle East. And they've, they've forced kingdoms like Egypt and Babylon and the kingdom of the Medes, which will become later on the kingdom of Persia. That's a whole other fun history tale. Um, those are vassal states, which means they pay tribute to Assyria, and they they essentially allow the Assyrians to tell them what to do. And Judah becomes a vassal state as well. So the kingdom of Judah now has to pay tribute to Assyria, and their military is pledged to help the Assyrians anytime they're called upon. The only nation that's really going to ever stand up to Assyria for a long time is going to be Egypt, because Egypt is the only place powerful enough to feel like it can flex its muscles. It, 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 at times it is a vassal state of Assyria, at times it's an enemy, at times it's an ally, it just depends on you know, who's, who's ruling over it. But, but in this story that we've read this week, Assyria invades Judah. Basically Hezekiah has done something to upset the Assyrian emperor. Um, who now invades Judah. And the reason I want to highlight this is because it's one of a relatively small number of stories in these books in the Old Testament for which we have hard documentary evidence outside of the Bible. So the Assyrian king, really he's not called himself an emperor, he's a king, um, who invades Judah is Sennacherib. And he left his own written record of this invasion of Judah. Right, so in the Bible, it talks about he's got he he destroys the fortress city city of Lachish. He invades. He surrounds and lays siege to Jerusalem. And there is um, there is a record an Assyrian record in which Sennacherib, his exact words were, "I held Hezekiah trapped like a bird in a cage." So this siege, we know. Beyond all doubt, this siege happened. And I just point that out because, you know, <clears throat> I've said before on this podcast that that these historical books in the Bible are not always meant to be an accurate document of what happened. 
sometimes they're really trying to make more of a theological point. Sometimes they're just trying to explain things from, from a religious point of view. Um, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean, that does not mean that the events in question never took place. And, and we do well to remember that, that we are reading stories about real people and real places and real events, even if at times the details are exaggerated or altered to make a better story. They are real events. The Assyrian invasion of Judah, the siege of Jerusalem, is real. Now, the Bible gives a very different reason for why the Assyrians left than the Assyrians did. Um, in fact, I, if I remember correctly, the Assyrians really don't give much of a reason. They just say they accomplished what they came to do and left. They don't mention the, the disease sweeping through the camp. Um, but that itself, that itself is, is pretty believable. Um, it was pretty common for diseases to do that in army camps in that day and age when there was not much hygiene going on. Um, so that's just a little side note on Hezekiah, right? He, he's, he's sort of a mixed figure as a king. He does some good things, right? He repents, he turns to God when he's, when he's in trouble and the Assyrians have surrounded him and God acknowledges that. He also does some stupid things. Um, for instance, allowing the Babylonians to come in and look at all the riches in his temple. Um, not wise, Hezekiah, right? You're taking these foreign people who have the power to invade you and saying, hey, look at all this cool stuff I have. And God is understandably frustrated with him. But the story quickly moves on to King Josiah, who will be remembered as one of the relatively small number of good kings of Israel. Josiah, has. there's this little incident in, in 2 Kings 22, verse 8, where he sends someone to go basically like clean out the temple and, and you know, restore it, you know, make it pretty again, I suppose. You know, it, but there's this fascinating thing where like he discovers the scroll that contains the book of the law. He discovers it, which means they didn't have it. We don't know when they lost it, but evidently it's been missing for long enough that no one knows what it is when he finds it. Think about that for a minute. Imagine losing all of the Bibles in your church for decades, if not centuries. I mean, I know every church has that one storage closet that no one wants to go into, but come on, we would not lose the Bible like that. It's, it's unbelievable. And it highlights, it highlights just how far God's people have fallen and how, how, how much they have lost their way. Um, and, and to be clear, right, not having the book of the law is not an excuse for not following the law, right? Because they, they lost the law because they neglected it, not the other way around. So Josiah, in, in, you know, he, he reacts properly to discovering these laws, and he's kind of horrified that that uh, the people have ignored these laws so thoroughly, and so he institutes these sweeping religious reforms, right? And, and you know, throughout the whole kingdom of Judah, all of the altars to pagan gods are destroyed or defiled and taken down, um, and, and really, for the first time since Solomon, the kingdom of Judah is actually faithful to God. And so this is like the first time in at least 200 years or so. We're talking about a very long period of time, quite possibly closer to three or 400 years. It's been a long time since Solomon was king by the time Josiah rises to the throne. 
And so the kingdom is brought back into line and they're faithful. And then tragedy strikes. Josiah dies in battle against the Egyptians. And so what's happening here is um, the, the Egyptian army is moving north to help the last remnants of the Assyrian Empire. Because in a very short span of time, the Assyrian Empire has fallen. So Sennacherib, the king who, who invaded Judah, dies not long after that invasion. And then his multiple sons begin squabbling over who gets the throne. And that, that weakens the kingdom enough that, that the Babylonians, the Medes who live in modern-day Iraq and will eventually become... Uh, part of the Persian Empire. There's some weird ethnic stuff going on there, but they live in in modern-day Iraq. They'll become a a core part of the Persian Empire later. So the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Scythians. And the Scythians are these people who live in Central Asia and in the Russian steppe. And they are are the boogeyman of the ancient world. Steppe peoples are like the, the... last people anyone ever wants to fight because they're, you know, if you ever, if you know anything about like the Mongol hordes under, under Genghis Khan later on, these are their predecessor. They are mounted horse archers. They are incredibly skillful. They are incredibly hard to fight because they fight on horseback all the time. They're fast. They're mobile. They have uh, a shocking amount of accuracy with their bows on horseback. They are the boogeyman, right? And the Assyrian Empire at its height was able to hold them back But now that the Assyrian Empire is weakened, they have joined with the Babylonians and the Medes to come and and tear down what's left of them. And and actually, they have already, by this point, they have already um, completely destroyed the Assyrian capital at Nineveh. The Assyrian Empire is all but gone. And literally, the last remnants of the empire have moved further west towards the coast of the Mediterranean. And the Egyptians are hoping, hoping that if they can defeat that alliance alongside the Assyrians, then they can sort of create a power vacuum where they can once again be sort of the the main superpower in the world. And Judah, the kingdom of Judah under King Josiah is now part of this alliance with the Babylonians and the Medes and the Scythians. And it's not entirely clear if they are a vassal state like they were with the Assyrians or if they just sort of finally saw their opportunity to get back at the people who'd been oppressing them and joined in this rebel alliance that's overthrowing the Assyrian. Um, but Assyria no longer has any real power. So one way or another, Judah has thrown in its lot with the Babylonians, the Medes, the Scythians. And so what Josiah is doing in this story is he's attempting to delay the army of Egypt from joining up with what's left of the Assyrian military. Uh, and, and so they meet at the plain of Megiddo in, in Israel. Um, and boy, the, the, the army of Judah just never has any chance. They're swept aside by the Egyptians. Josiah dies. Um, But it does seem like they accomplish their purpose because they do delay the Egyptians long enough that the Babylonians and their allies will then annihilate the Egyptian and the Assyrian forces at the Battle of Carchemish, which happened in 605 BC. And so that's around the time Josiah lived. So again, these events that take place outside the story help us to kind of date when all this is happening. So Josiah is sometime around 
He dies. He dies in 605 BC, shortly before the Battle of Carchemish. So his reign begins sort of in the late, uh, the late. I, I, I always get confused because BC goes backwards. Um, <laughs> he, so he reigns in the 600s BC. So his his life is roughly, and these stories are roughly 600 years or so before the event in the New Testament. So just stop and think about the time frame here. From the death of King Josiah to the stories in the Gospels, more time has passed than from the first colonists landing in the New World to now. This is a vast scope of history we're dealing with, and a lot happened. Uh, and I always just like to remind people of, of the time frame of the, of the things that are going on. Um, because sometimes we forget, but, but I mean, you're dealing with these vast scales of events. And, and uh, anywho, so this takes place, uh, 605 BC, Josiah dies. Egypt which is defeated in this battle, but but Egypt eventually sort of manages to rise to power again. And then they force the kingdom of Judah into being a vassal state for Egypt. So in the span of less than a century, Judah has gone from being a vassal of the Assyrian Empire to being a vassal of the Babylonians to now being a vassal of the Egyptians. They're being they're they're they've become this sort of political chess piece that people are fighting over, um, in large part because they sit on on a series of important roads that control major trade routes throughout the Middle East. So in terms of strategy and politics and economics, they're, they're in a very important strategic location, and people want to control it. That'll be true of the Romans later on as well, by the way. Um, so all these major superpowers are squabbling over this tiny little kingdom of Judah, which just can't really do much about it. Um, so Egypt forces Judah into becoming their vassal, which means that they have betrayed Babylon, and that begins the sequence of events that will eventually lead into exile. And the exile happens in two stages. First, the Babylonians carry off the royal family, the wealthy, the temple priests, and the other elites. That happens sometime around like 597 BC. And they install a puppet king, Zedekiah, who will rule Judah for them. The idea being that since they put him in power, he'll be loyal to them. And he is for about 10 years, nine years. And then he rebels, which does not go well. As a result of his rebellion, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians, and, and this time they don't just settle for carting off the elite. They take everybody except the very poorest people. So all of the, everyone with an education, all the prophets, all the craftsmen, all the merchants, all the traders, all the winemakers, all the landowners, they're all gone. They're, they're carried off into exile. And that's around 587 B.C., give or take. Those particular events are a bit harder to date than some of the other ones. And that ends the kingdom of Judah. From this point on, they're going to be spending several centuries under the rule of foreign peoples. First Babylon, then Persia, then Alexander the Great, and then the Seleucid Empire, who, which is ruled by one of Alexander the Great's generals. 
And so the book of Kings doesn't exactly end on a high note. Except, of course, I mean, it goes through, you know, the Persians and, and that. But um, but this story, right, you, it's concluding this, this tale of Israel's fall from grace. And the history nerd in me loves this because we can date so many of these events that it's actually, we, we, we know that these things happened. We know that the Babylonians carried off the, the people of Jerusalem into exile. And what these stories are giving is the, the religious explanation for political events. Which is significant. This matters. We have to actually remember that um, those religious explanations, the theological interpretation of what happens in the world, that matters. God is at work in the world. This is a key theme of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is at work in the world right now. And so we don't have the luxury of interpreting things merely through a political lens or an economic lens or a military lens. We have to apply a theological lens to the world we live in and to world events because we have to understand that God is at work in the world. And therefore, we have to assume that there is more meaning to the things that are happening around us than pure politics, pure economics, etc., there is more going on than meets the eye. And that's the value of these historical books in the Bible because they, they help us see how to interpret that. But they also insist that you know not everything is God's doing, right? Josiah dies in battle, but he's one of the good kings. He clearly has God's favor, yet he dies in the battle. So there is a balance where God is at work in the world, but he is not micromanaging events. And we're going to have to distrust that he will, he will accomplish his purposes no matter what. No doubt God would have preferred for Josiah to live and the kingdom of Judah to remain faithful, but that's not how it happened. See, God could control events if he wanted to. He could micromanage, but it seems that God doesn't want to. And that's significant. God wants us to exercise our free will in the world. Even though he knows we're going to fail from time to time. He would rather he would rather us do good of our own free will. He would rather us be his agents in the world than micromanage everything. So even as God is at work in the world, he is also not controlling every single event. It's a weird tension we have to live with in understanding that, yes, God is at work, God is here, he's present, he's doing things, and yet... He is intentionally not controlling everything. That, I think, is the lesson of the book of Kings for us today. Next week, we're going to dive into the book of Chronicles. We didn't get any questions sent in this week, so 
relatively short podcast. But I will come to you again next week as we dive into First and Second Chronicles. <laughs>